Okay, um, let's begin um, the Shiv on the book of Yecheskel, Ilunish Shmosim Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avramaria Cohen, Chaya Toba, Bas Aliyah Zemendel Hakohen. We're in chapter nine, and we're dealing with verses five and six, which are we were having a little bit of uh, uh, difficulty with them last week. I'll just read them to you again. Uh, just the background is Yecheskel five years before the destruction of the temple itself, is being given a vision, an allegorical vision of what how the temple will be destroyed. And in his vision, he doesn't see the Babylonians destroying uh, the city and the temple. He sees six angels or six represented God's representatives, destroyers, coming into Yerushalayim and destroying Yerushalayim. And the original plan was, as the Gomorrah and Shabbos described, the original plan was that um, uh, certain people would be excluded from the massacre, uh, the righteous, and then God seemed to change his mind. Just to read the verses again, uh, verses 5 and 6. And to these, to these destroyers, the six destroyers, um, God said in my earshot, Follow this man, the other man, who is dressed in white, who's uh, recording everything and pointing out who should be killed, the uh, Haku, and kill those that uh, are supposed to be killed. Don't have any pity, don't have any empathy, don't have any sympathy, just kill the ones that are supposed to be killed. Zochein, verse 6, Zochein, Bochor, Besula, Vataf, Benoshim. Makes no difference whether they're old men, young uh, young men, old men, young women, young children, old women. Well, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, Taragu, kill them all. Lamashkis, they'll be utterly destroyed. But I'll call Ishasha Olov Hatav, anyone that's got this particular uh, sign on their forehead, a tav, uh, the letter tav uh, that's written in ink. Al uh, Tigoshu, don't touch them. And begin, begin the slaughter by my base amigdosh, by my tat sanctuary. So the destroyers began to kill everyone in Yerushalayim, starting with the elders who were in front of the base amigdosh. Now the Gemara uh, that we dealt with last week. Describe what God required. And um, there were two types of people in Yerushalayim. One had a tab, a letter tab, written in ink on their forehead. They were to be left alone. And those with a tab of blood on their forehead, those, those were the ones that were going to be destroyed. And the Gomorrah says that this verse 6 here where the verse says, Zochein Bochel Ubsula Vataf Noshim Taragu Lamashchis, kill all the men, women, and children who have got this, uh, who are in the uh, wicked camp. Uh, alcohol, in other words, they've got a, a tav on their head, a letter tav on their head in blood, kill them all. Va'alkol Ish Asher Olov Hatav Altigoshim, and on those people that have got a tav, letter tav on their heads, written in ink, leave them alone. And then, says the Gemara, then God changes his mind. God says, I've changed my mind. Uh, start at the temple. 
kill everybody. And as a result of that, the destroyers began with the elders, with the righteous men, that were in front of the house. And the Gemara described, as we discussed last week, God was challenged by the Midas Haddin. God's orig- original plan was that the, all the righteous people would have a letter tap engraved on their foreheads uh, in ink that the uh, destroyers will leave alone and the let- those with the letter tap on their foreheads in blood, the destroyers would kill. And that was supposed to be the demarcation. And then the Gemara says a conversation took place between the Midas Adin, uh, God's attribute of strict justice, and God himself. And uh, just to recap the conversation, um, God said, you know, to the six angels, don't touch the ones with a tab on their head in ink. That stands for Tichye, they should live, you, you will live. And the ones with a tab that was in blood means Tamut, Tamus, you will die. And the Midasadin, God's, uh, so to speak, attribute of justice, said to God, why are the white, righteous ones being saved? Um, and the wicked ones killed. So God replied, they're, because they're righteous. And God's attribute of justice said to him, but uh, the righteous could have protested the behavior publicly of the wicked. And they didn't protest. And therefore they should be... Uh, they should be treated the same way as the wicked and killed. And God said, no, that's not right, because I know, I know I'm God. And I know that even had they had the righteous protested uh, the conduct of the wicked of Yushalayim, the wicked people would not have accepted the reprimand, the rebuke, uh, and they would never have done Teshuvah anyway. They just continued in their wicked ways, uh, to which the attribute of justice said, that's true. You knew, you're God. You knew that uh, if the righteous people would have reprimanded and rebuked the wicked people of Yushalayim, that rebuke would have been ineffective. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that that attempt would be futile. So the Gemara says that God, accepting this argument, retracted his promise to protect the righteous and decided that those uh, who failed to protest the evil that was going on in Yerushalayim, the righteous should be punished as well. And that is the meaning of this verse. At the end of the verse, the end of verse 6, says the Gemara, what does it mean, says the Gemara, Omar of Yosef, don't read the word, begin the destruction at my Beit HaMikdosh, rather read the word, Begin the destruction with my holy ones, with my righteous ones. Um, uh, people who observe the Torah in its entirety. So, and as we see from the end of the Pasuk, So these destroyers began the, the slaughter of the Jews of Yushalayim with the righteous people who were standing in front of the Brace Amikdash. And that's where we got to last time. It's a very strange Gemara. And as I mentioned last time, uh, this idea of God changing his mind and having a conversation with himself, because the reality is God is the Midas Hadin. God is the Midas HaRachamim. God is his own attribute of mercy. And God is his own 
attribute of uh, strict justice. So, like, it, it, God's not schizophrenic. So the idea of a Gomorrah telling us that God's having a conversation with himself is a bit strange. Not to mention various other questions that we brought up last time that we'll deal with hopefully today. If not, we'll have to deal with them in three weeks' time because the next two weeks uh, I won't be here. But uh, the the conclu- I want to deal with the conclusion of the Gomorrah. The conclusion before we ask all the questions on this Gomorrah, which is extremely difficult to explain. Um, but the, the conclusion of the Gomorrah is not as difficult to explain. The conclusion of the Gomorrah is this, that the the attitude of God, so to speak, is this, that there's an, a, 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 a responsibility upon religious people, righteous people, people with a sense of morality and a sense of what is right, that when they see that something is uh, done that's inappropriate, they should speak up about it. And um, the, uh, there are three um, drushes here um, that I, I want to share with you. One's from the Briskarov, um, uh, and the, the other two, uh, one's from the, the Malbim and one's from uh, a Gomorrah Shavuos, uh, that give uh, put into context this idea of rebuke, of how you're supposed to rebuke, should you rebuke, when you're supposed to rebuke uh, people that are committing avarice. Now, we know, for example, that we live, uh, those of us that live in the land of Israel, even the people that live in the land of, in, in the land of America, in the Galta Medina, uh, in America, which is not so Galta anymore, I understand, with all the inflation and everything else that's going with it. But everywhere, uh, you know, we see somebody who's, uh, we come home from Shul or Chavez, and we see a Jewish person driving in his car on Shabbos, we don't tap, uh, bang on the win- window and, uh, you know, shout at him or rebuke him for driving on Shabbos. We don't do that. And there are reasons for that. But um, the Briskarov here on this Gemara uh, has got a little bit of a, an essay. Well, I'm just going to give you the highlights of it. Um, and it's really entitled The Sin of the Silent. When the silent uh, people... Uh, the righteous silent, the, the righteous people are silent. He says the clean live. This is these are the words of the briskarov. Uh, the clean living righteous people of Yehuda and Yerushalayim were equally to blame, e- equally to blame for the ensuing tragedy and destruction and exile that was visited on Jerusalem, in that they just didn't care what other people were doing. They were far more engrossed in living their own lives. But that is not the Jewish way. In Judaism, silence in the face of evil is not an option. In Judaism, there is no right to remain silent. Of course, we know that if you live in America or you live in England, so in America, there's the Miranda rights. You've got the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be taken down using evidence against you. There's a similar code in the United Kingdom. Um, You have the right to remain silent, but it may harm your defense. If you fail to mention now something you later rely on in court, which is a very similar um, statement. And there is a a universal right within the democracies, apart from France um, and Israel, apparently, uh, to remain silent. But in Judaism, there's no right to silence. Says the Briskarov, we believe in shtika kohodah. Silence is an admission of guilt. And it's a, and it's a, uh, an, uh, a sign that you're condoning evil. These people, 
these people he's talking about, these people in Yerushalayim are in for a rude awakening. Because when the Babylonians arrived, these onlookers, these uninterested observers of the evil that went on around them for years, will suffer the death and destruction and tragedy and the sword and famine and disease and exile that will engulf the wicked. The clean, living, righteous majority of Yerushalayim and Yehuda were part of the problem because their silence at the commission of three of the three cardinal sins of uh, paganism. Um, hold on. Gee whiz. Put me on my computer here. Just give me a second. Yeah. Just give me a second. <sighs> yeah, just to, to continue what the Briskorov said. He said, the clean, living, silent, righteous majority of, Yushalayim, of Yehuda and Yushalayim were part of the problem because by their silence at the commission of the three cardinal sins of Avodah paganism, adultery, and murder by the minority, and they're turning a blind eye to the other acts of corruption and lack of an honest judiciary that was a feature of their society, they are equally to blame as the evil members of their own society. They could have been part of the solution by speaking out and objecting to all the evil that was going on around them and maybe stopping it. The evil that had been going on around them for hundreds of years. They could have stopped it in its tracks decades or even centuries earlier. Instead of which they were silent and they became part of the problem. So those very harsh words uh, from the Briskorov uh, in his explanation of the conclusion of the Gemara, not uh, trying to explain the rationale of the way the Gemara is actually constructed, but the actual conclusion of the Gemara. So that's the way the Briskorov understands this idea of Shtika Gaudah. The Jewish people are not allowed to be silent. And we'll deal with it in more detail in a later shear, um, when, how and why, uh, under what circumstances you're supposed to speak out. But there's a general rule of Shtika Gaudah. If you're quiet, um, you in the court of law, you've not got the right to silence. And if you don't open your mouth when evil is being committed around you, it means in Jewish law you're condoning it. So that's the opinion of the Briskorov. There's a Gemara in Shavuos on that Lamed Tess, on Aleph, and on Lamed Beis. It makes a similar point to the Briskorov, slightly different. The Gemara there is examining the idea that one person uh, or even an entire community, uh, an individual or community are not held responsible for the sins of another individual. At which point the Gomorrah quotes a verse from Vayikra. And the, the verse in Vayikra in chapter 26 is this. Each man will stumble over his brother. Sorry, let me start the pasuk again. Each man will stumble over his brother. Fleeing from a sword, uh, but without a pursuer. They will not be able to stand up against their enemies. And the Gemara explains that pasuk in Vayikra like this. 
Uh, let me just mute everybody one more time. Okay. Yeah, so the Gemara explains this verse as follows. The Pesach says, V'koshlu ish be'acho, be'acho. A man will stumble. In other words, he'll be punished for the sins of his brother. And the Gemara says, this teaches us, Shekol Yisrael arevim zebazeh. Every Jew is responsible for every other Jew. And the the uh, implication from this Gemara is that even in a situation where it's impossible to, for, for you e- to even know about the sins of your fellow Jew, let alone be in a position to warn and rebuke him about his actions, nevertheless, says the Gemara, a very dark thought, nevertheless, says the Gemara, since all Jews are guarantors for each other, when one Jew sins, the responsibility for that sin rests with the entire Jewish people, irrespective of whether they are righteous or wicked. Similar to the fact that, as the Gemara describes, the lungs become infected with disease or infection. There is a negative knock-on effect for the whole body. The Jews, therefore, are described as one organic whole, where anything that affects one part of the body will be felt by the whole corporate body. On the positive flip side, that's my uh, uh, translation of the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't use the language of flip side. But on the positive flip side, any mitzvah performed by any Jew will have a positive effect on the whole of corporate Israel. So the Gemara there is not exactly the same as what the Briskorov was saying, but very similar, that uh, we're guarantors to each other. And we say this in when we bench Rosh Chodesh every month, Chaveirim Kol Yisrael, we say that in Chutzlar, I don't think we say it here, but Chaveirim Kol Yisrael, we're all Chaveirim together, we're all in the same boat, we're all in it together, we're guarantors of each other, and we have to watch over each other. And we watch over each other in the sense that we have to make sure that corporate Israel is going down the right path. The Malbim extends this idea, not just from the perspective of the Jewish people being massacred in Yerushalayim, but he also extends this idea um, regarding exile as well. Uh, So the Malbim... um, writes that not only were both the righteous and the evil doers, doers massacred together in Yerushalayim by the Babylonians, but in, that in terms of exile as well, both the righteous and the evildoers suffer the same hardships of, uh, of exile equally. And we saw this, uh, again, not trying to explain it in any way. We saw this in the Holocaust as well. There was no favors done for the righteous. Uh, everybody was in the same boat. You're in the concentration camp. You know, it seemed to make no difference whether you're uh, a big chosid and a big tzaddik or you, uh, you know, secular, secular socialist from, uh, you know, from Poland. Made no difference. And the Malbin, uh, to um, uh, support his position, and again, this is very hard for people to hear, uh, the Malbin quotes verses from EO, again, this is chapter 18 Eov. And chapter 18 Eov is very difficult to understand. Um, but uh, the Malbim uses uh, chapter 8, verses 16 to 19, four verses in Eov to illustrate this point, um, particularly in relation to exile. That uh, when exile comes, God doesn't distinguish between righteous and evil. Everyone goes into exile together and everyone suffers together the same. So he writes, uh, the Malbim writes in the book of Eov, 
One of Eob's comforters, one of Job's comforters, was an individual called Bildad. And in chapter 8, he's telling Eob why he's suffering so much. Eob lost everything, and he became very sick, and he had three comforters that came to see him, and they basically all told him the same thing, um, that, uh, you know, you've obviously done something wrong, otherwise you won't be being punished. Uh, we see at the end of the book that Eob rejects the words of these comforters. But um, in, in chapter 8, he he's he's uh, approached by this individual Bildad, and Bildad compares his the suffering um, that Eob is experiencing to the way a tree is sometimes has to be uprooted from a garden. And the verse the verse the verse is obviously this is uh, Eob, so the verses are very difficult to understand. But the the uh, Malbim unravels them. I'll just read to you the verses he quotes. It says over there. In Eov, Ritovu Lifne Shemesh for Alginoso Yanakto Tetse. This tree is fresh and moist in front of the sun, and into the garden its tender shoots emerges and spreads. Algal Sharoshov Yisaboku, Base Avonim Yecheze. But, but beside the fountain, its roots have become entwined and have become rooted in the stones. If the tree would be removed from its place, such that the garden would deny it its presence, saying, I have never seen you before, then this is the joy that the tree would spring up and grow from other earth. So exactly what does that mean? So we're not going to go into uh, uh, details of those psukim, but the Malbim said the reference to a tree here in these verses in Eov is a reference to the Jewish people. Sometimes from the outside, the Jewish people look like a wonderful crowd, but uh, like a tree sitting in the uh, afternoon sun, providing shade, looking healthy, Um so that if a person would see a garden one day, like look upon the Jews one day with a beautiful or look upon the world one day with a beautiful tree inside it, the tree being the Jewish people, and then visit the garden sometime later and take a much closer look and see that the tree um, has been uprooted. He would declare what a tragedy I and mean, see that the Jewish people have been taken out of their land and uprooted and exiled somewhere else. They would say, what a tragedy. Someone has uprooted such a beautiful tree from its garden. Someone has exiled the Jewish people from the land of Israel. He says the Malbim, but the reality is that sometimes a tree has to be transplanted because the roots become entangled and rooted in in the stones that are under the ground and can't be seen by a casual look. So that for the health of the tree in general, it needs to be transplanted somewhere else for its own health. And he says the analogy to the Jews is this. They are the tree living in a beautiful garden, the beautiful garden of Israel. But their roots at the time of the destruction of the temple have become entangled. They become um, unmanageable and they are trapped by stone. Uh, the growth of the people has gone into reverse. They are not thriving there. Uh, and that's because of the complacency, the corruption, 
the Avodah Zorah, the paganism, the murder, the sexual impropriety, as a result, for the sake of the health of the tree, for the sake of the health of the Jews, the entire tree, all the Jews that escape death, have to be transplanted to a fresh garden. And the fresh garden is Babylonia. In order that their roots can become untangled and the tree can once again grow to its full potential. Once the tree has been transplanted into the new garden and the Jews have begun to grow more healthy, the tree, the Jewish people, have begun to grow more healthily in their new environment, which the Jews did in Babylonia. Remember, we discussed the fact that when they got to Babylonia, it inspired a, a huge Baltashuva movement. So once it's been transplanted, this tree, the Jewish people, once they've been transplanted from their garden of Israel into Babylonia, and they've sorted their roots out, it can be returned to its original garden, back to Israel, and grow in the way it was supposed to from day one. That's a beautiful analogy uh, based on this these psukim in um, Eov. So essentially, the conclusion of the Gemara is not really in doubt. That uh, uh, we know from Jewish history, from all the holocausts that have taken place uh, to the Jewish people throughout history, that um, there are no exceptions. Uh, the righteous, the evil doers, everybody, everybody goes the same way, and the Shema attests to it. Um, in the first part, I mentioned this many times. The first parasha of the Shema is in the singular. There's a commandment there on the individual. It's all in the singular. And if you notice in the first parasha of the Shema, the first paragraph of the Shema, no promises are made to anybody. There are no promises made to the righteous. There are no promises made to the wicked. There's no promises made to anybody. No guarantees. And the reality is when the Jewish people are, uh, so to speak, in a period of uh, destruction, in a period of uh, being uh, oppressed in terms of being murdered, um, there seems to be absolutely no difference between what happens to the righteous and what happens to the evildoers. So that that's, that is the conclusion of the Gemara. The conclusion of the Gemara is supported by empirical evidence of Jewish history, the story of what happened uh, in the Babylonian uh, conquest of Yerushalayim, what happened with the Roman uh, destruction of Yerushalayim and the base of Mikdosh, and what happened in the Holocaust, and what happened in, in all those times in between, the Chalmanitsky massacres, the uh, expulsion from Portugal and Spain, uh, the massacres that took place in all over Europe. Um, there was no, there, there was no, um, there was no difference uh, between what happened to the righteous and what happened to uh, the wicked. So the Gemara's conclusion is is fine. It fits in with Jewish history and it fits in with uh, the attitude really of the Shema. That is the statement that we read every day, three times a day in the Shema. But even after these three explanations, rationalizing the conclusion of the Gemara, um, uh, we're still left with a huge problem. We're actually left with five huge problems. Um, that uh, This idea that God changed his mind uh, and almost everyone became a victim of either the carnage in Yerushalayim or the exile. 
uh, and that even the righteous had to suffer the consequences of the actions of the evil do- doers. And so the Gemara itself remains very difficult to understand. Now, I'm going to give you the first, uh, maybe I'll give you the first three questions. We'll deal with those first, and then we'll deal with the other two. Um, if there's any questions up to this point, now's the time to ask, because we're going to move on to something uh, quite deep. Okay. So the the first question uh, on this Gemara is this. Once the angel had inscribed the letter Taf, remember God ins- instructed the angel, um, the angel dressed in white, to inscribe the Taf in ink on the heads of those to be saved, in indicating Taf, for Tichia, you will live. Why was it then necessary to write anything on the heads of the r- wicked, on the heads of the Rishoyim? After all, because uh, the Gemara says that God instructed him to write a tab of ink on those that are going to be saved originally, and a tab, a letter tab of blood on those that were going to be killed. So the first question is, well, if once you've written one tab, a letter tab on the heads of those that are going to be saved, so why do you have to write another tab? That the, the angels are not stupid. Uh, if the tzaddikim had a tab in ink on their heads, so when the angels traveled through, or the destroyers traveled through the city, so to speak, they would automatically know that anyone with a mark on their forehead were not to be touched, and anyone else was going to be killed, without the need for the wicked people to have any mark on their foreheads at all. So that's uh, the first question that needs to be unraveled. Why the Gomorrah says, you know, that's what God said, that there should be a tab of ink on the righteous and a tab of blood on the wicked, so that the uh, destructive angels would know who to kill and would know who to spare. That's not true. Just uh, just one mark, uh, just tell them. Anyone with a mark on their forehead uh, is safe. So that's the first question. Second question is, this idea of God changing his mind, what sort of an idea is that? Um, the Gemara says that Rabacha Barab Khanina said, that uh, this is the only time. Never did a promise of good or beneficial events or decrees emerge from the mouth of God that he later retracted and turned into an evil decree, except in relation to this this matter. So, like, what's what's God doing? Changing his mind? God doesn't change his mind. So, what what exactly does the Gemara mean that God changed his mind? The third question. Um, why a letter tab? Why write a letter tab on anyone's forehead? What's a letter tab indicate? Okay, you could write the word tab. It means tichye, you shall live, or Thomas, you shall die. But it could be any, it could have been any, you could have, uh, you use the word nun. The nun, nichye, will live. We will live. Or uh, any, any letter. Like what, what what's the uh, significance of the letter tab? And, um what and uh, beyond that why was the letter tav written on the heads of the righteous in ink whilst the tav meaning tamut tamus die that was written on the heads of the wicked it was written in blood so those are four questions there's a fifth question which we'll have to deal with later on but uh um these are all questions that uh, go to the very heart of this gomorra so <clears throat> I want to look at the Ben Yoda here. He examines and explains the conclusion of the Gemara. 
and then asks and answers the first two questions we've just read. So these are the words of the Ben Yoyodo. He says, God said to Gabriel, so uh, the, the Ben Yoyodo holds uh, that the angel dressed in white was Gabriel, the one that's dressed in white, that's holding the uh, ledger, that's writing everything down, that's directing operations, that's directing the six destroyers, who should be killed and who should not be killed. And then he directs them to kill everybody. That's Gabriel. And says the Ben Yoda, he quotes the Gemara Lachar Rishama Mitzlan Shel Sadikim Tab Shel Dio, that God commanded uh, Gabriel to to write a letter tap on in ink on the heads of the righteous. Shelo Yishlatu Bahem Malachay Chavola, so that the angels of destruction wouldn't touch them. Says the Ben Yoda Kosher. Masha Omal Lishramal Tzadikim Da Ain Tzorech Lishramal Rishoyim. Uh, why did, uh, why did God originally tell Gabriel to mark, uh, with an ink, uh, a marker, a tap, in ink on the heads of the Tzadikim with a tap, Tichyu, um, so that the angels would leave them alone, uh, and would only kill the Rashoyim, who had the letter Tav, Tamut, you, uh, you, you will die on their heads written in blood. He says, after all, he says, God could have just commanded that uh, anyone with a tab on his head should be killed, or anyone with a, a, a mark on his head should be killed, or anyone with a mark on his head should be saved. Um, and anyone that doesn't have a tab on his head should be left alone, or anyone that doesn't have a tab on his head should be killed. Like, there was only need for one... Um, a tab on one group of people, which is the 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 first question we ask. He says, "We own kosher." Uh, Secondly, what's this idea of God changing his mind? He says, "After all, God knew. God, if God's having a conversation with the, his own midas hadid, with his own um, uh, aspect of." Uh, 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 strict justice. He knows what the arguments are. Look, God knows how God's God. God knows how the conversation is going to go with the Midas uh, Adin, with the attribute of strict justice, and He knows what the, the attribute of strict justice is going to say. That these people should have. Um, Warned, rebuked the the righteous should have warned and rebuked the evil evil doers of Yerushalayim, and then God's going to say, yeah, yeah, but they if they'd have done that, they wouldn't the the wicked people wouldn't have listened, and then the Midasadin would say, well, uh, yeah, you know that because you're God, uh, but they didn't know that, so God says, okay, I agree, they they're just as guilty, they let's kill them all. God knew that conversation, so if God knows that conversation. Um, what the heck's the, the conversation about? Like, uh, if God knows how that conversation is going to go, why did he say, uh, why did he instruct the Malach dressed in white originally to write a tab, a letter tab in ink on the heads of the righteous as a protective measure? If he knew at the end of the day, 
that the argument was going to go in such a way that he would end up changing his mind and ordering that everyone be killed. He said, it just doesn't make any sense. So, so here's the Ben Yoda's uh, response. He says, look, there were three groups inside Yerushalayim. This is a little bit of a forced answer. We'll see a better answer, what I think is a better answer soon. But he says, like, does everyone understand these questions? If anyone does not understand these questions, please uh, speak now. Once again, ink is indelible, but blood dries up and deteriorates. Yeah, 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 we'll come to this, we'll come to this. Um, uh, okay, everyone understands. Okay, says, says the Ben Yoyod, says it appears to me with the help of heaven. I've written earlier in the Gemara. This is he's writing on the Gemara in, 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 on page fifty-five, and he's quoting what he wrote in on page uh, forty-four. There's a group of people in among the Jewish people called Sadikim Gemurim, absolute Sadikim. They those people are not killed by the Malachamovas. You know, we have this uh, understanding that uh, one day, you know, it shouldn't come for a very long time at Mevah Esrim Shona that you actually get to meet the Malachamovas, which is, you know, not something to look forward to, the angel of death. But Sadiq and Gemurim don't get to meet the angel of death. Barak Bashas Misa Omed Lifnehem. And what happens is when you're at Sadiq Gomor, when you're on the highest level, all that happens is the... Um, the angel of death comes into your area. Or Klizama. He just shows you like uh, his weapon. He just puts shows you his weapon in front of his eyes. And Sadiqim recognize the sign and surrender themselves to God. And they pass away peacefully in the hands of, and are received by God's Shekhinah, uh, by God's presence, by God's essence. V'yadua, ki tomid yesh b'Yisrael shadikin gemurim. It's uh, known uh, that always, in every generation, there are these tzadikim gemurim, very few of them, absolute, total, complete, righteous people, and tzadikim beinanim. And so the righteous people who are, you know, they're very good and tzaddikim and they keep the Torah, um, but they're not on that level. They're not on the highest level. V'yodua, the habeinanim nidonim barov zuchuyos. These tzaddikim beinanim, these righteous people that are, you know, below the top level, uh, you know, people that keep people that keep the the Torah, people that uh, learn and uh, keep the Torah and uh, do everything that's required of them. Uh, these people, the regular people who keep the Torah, are judged based on the balance of their merits and their transgressions. But tzaddikim sa'ara, but these the tzaddikim gemurim, the the upper echelons of the tzaddikim, the top. A percentile who reach the level of super tzaddikim, tzaddikim gemurim, they're judged to a hair's breadth. In other words, the lower down the ladder you get, the more leeway you get in terms of your averus. Uh, but 
or Rishoim Gemurim. There's a third group, and they're called Rishoim Gemurim. Um, total, totally evil people. Lokin Bishvil Robe Abonos. Wicked people are punished because of their sins. Uh, you know, they get, uh, we're going into the intricacies of it, but generally speaking, Rashawn Gemurim, total, totally wicked people, they get their, whatever, whatever mitzvahs they've done, they get rewarded here, and their, their death, and their, what happens to them subsequently, uh, is a result of their sins. They, they, they're rewarded in this world rather than the next. Ubizem, Ubizem, Muva, Pa'inian, Tetechila, Omalah Hashem. Lirshom al Sadikim Gemurim Tap. That what the Gemara is telling you is that the command from God was to write a tab in ink on the heads of the super righteous. Below Lapotrom Mimisalagamre. It wasn't to exempt them from death. Totally. That the tab of ink that was put on the tzaddikim gemurim, that the idea of that was that the, the uh, angels should know, the angels of Chavola, the destructive angels should know that these are tzaddikim gemurim, and they're not to be killed, they're not to die in the same way that everybody else is to die. They are to die, but they're to die in a much calmer fashion, so to speak, in a natural way, and not to die at the hands of of, of violence. Uh, just like the Malachamovits would deal with them, and they'd die peacefully via God's kiss, like as a na- in a natural uh, manner. But Simon shall reshoyim, and the simon, the, the taf of the Rashoyim, which was a taf of blood on their heads, who Kadesh Yishlu Bom Malche Chavola Shemimslosam Osam Becharabom Mamish. And the second taf of blood was written on the heads of the, of the Rashoyim, of the wicked people, to alert the destroyers, to give them like a, a good seeing do, uh, make their death horrible, like give them a, a, a terrible death. But on the heads of the mediocre people, the people that were not Rishoyim, and that were not Tzadik and Gemurim, people who kept the Torah, but, um, you know, didn't reach the level of of uh, the, the, the absolute righteous, nothing was written on their heads. And these people, with nothing on their foreheads, the angels were not to touch them at all, not to touch them at all. With the Tzadik and Gemurim, they would just uh, walk past the Tzadik and Gemurim, and the Tzadik and Gemurim would recognize that their time was up, and they'd peacefully die. The Rishoyim, with the tab of blood on their heads, they'd be slaughtered. And the Bainanim, those people that are neither Tzadikim, proper top Tzadikim, and, and can certainly not be considered to be a Shoyim, nothing was written on their heads. And Lo uh, Yigobo, they, they were not to be touched. They had no marks on their heads. They were to be left alone. And the Babylonians would deal with these, these people either with death or exile. 
dependent on their particular situation or liability. So the destructive, destructive angels knew anyone with no mark on their forehead was to be left alone. And now he explains the Gemara. The Midasadin was prosecuting under a false illusion when he asked God the following question. What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? That you've written, that you've allowed that uh, a, a, a tap, a letter tap of ink should be written on the heads of the Sadiqin. Uh, and uh, the Middle Sadiqin got the wrong impression. So, Omar Laham Hashem, Omar Allah, God said to the Middle Sadiqin, Halalu Tzadikim Gemurim, the ones with the tab on their heads, um, in ink, they're the, the Tzadikim Gemurim. They're the top ranked Tzadikim. Bekivim Shishoma Midasadin, Shikoram Tzadikim Gemurim, Katrega Lahem, Shalomachu. And once God told him that these were the Tzadikim Gemurim, not just the regular Tzadikim, the, the top echelon, the top group, in Yerushalayim, then the Midasadin said, oh, why are you giving them special, why are you giving them special um, dispensation? If they're Tzadikim Gemurim, they should have rebuked the Jewish people in Yerushalayim. Um, so, Ach Midasadin lo yada kavanoso yisborach. They didn't re- understand what God's intention was. God's intention was not to spare them the Midasad didn't thought that God's intention by putting a tab of ink on the heads of the, the Tzadikim Gemurim was to spare them from death. The, the intention was not to spare them from death. The intention was to spare them from a violent death. He didn't, the Midasad didn't misunderstood the intention. Uh, he didn't understand what God's intention was in relation to these tzaddikim. That um, the, the tzaddikim gemurim were also going to die. It's just that they wouldn't die in the same way that uh, the Rishoyim were going to die. Um, that uh, the fact that Shalom Mochu, that they didn't rebuke uh, the Jews of Yerushalayim, so that meant that they were going to die. But they weren't going to die in the same case, same way as the Rishoyim. Omar, and what the Gemara says, and what the Gemara means, what the Gemara says, this is the only time in history where God changed his decree from a, a beneficial decree to an evil decree. It's a simple, incorrect assumption of understanding of what's going on in this story. Because God never actually changed his mind at all. Simply, the Midas Adin misunderstood God's instructions that was being given, which in the final analysis were as follows. Group number one. This is what it means when we're talking about writing a tab on the foreheads. Group number one, the Tzadikim Gemurim. They get a tab of ink on their foreheads. The angels of destruction were told not to slaughter them, just appear by them. 
with their weapons drawn, and the tzaddikim gemurim will die a natural death as a result of what they see, recognizing that God will bring them, so to speak, uh, uh, Misa Nishika with a kiss, and they will die a natural death. Group number two, the Tzadikim Bainanim, the majority of the people, they had nothing written on their foreheads. These are, these are people to, that were to be left to the Babylonians to wipe out or exile in accordance with their own particular personal behavior, merits, credits, uh, debits, assets and liabilities throughout their life. Group number three were the Rishoyim, those involved in Avodah paganism and adultery and all the other stuff. They get a tab of blood on their heads, indicated to the angels to wipe them out and slaughter them. That is the way that the Ben Yehoyodah understands this Gomorrah. Now, it's it's to me, it's a very, very difficult way to understand the Gemara because you can't really, in my opinion, I want to criticize the Ben Yoyoda, God, God forbid, but you can't categorize people into three groups. You can't categorize a million and a half people, two million people, and split them very casually into three overriding categories. Everybody's different. What is a Tzadik Gomor? What is a Tzadik Benini? What is a Rosha? Uh, it's, it's very difficult to... Uh, ascribe uh, categorization of two million people, one and a half to two million people, into three uh, into three um, um, particular categories, um, and um, and therefore not everybody likes this explanation of the Ben Yoyoda. and so the uh, a lot of commentators and, and uh, quite a few Jewish philosophers explain the conversation between God and the Midasadin differently. And this is the way that uh, they explain it, a a, a completely different explanation. They say that the reality is that God is one. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is indivisible unity, as in the Shema. As a result, we have to understand that God and the Midasadin, God and his... uh, um, God's aspect of strict justice are one and the same thing. There's no, you can't, you can't differentiate between God uh, and God's uh, attribute of mercy and God's attribute of strict justice or anything else about God when God is what? He's all the same thing. Um, so how can you have God talking with uh, or debating with himself? Uh, after all, as I mentioned before, God is not schizophrenic. And the answer is that this Gomorrah is an example of complete anthropomorphism. And this is the way you have to understand the debate between God and the Midasadit. The debate quite obviously never took place. Good, just like God never took us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. God does not have a strong hand and he does not have an outstretched arm. The Gomorrah, what the Gomorrah is doing is recording the debate as a human reference so that we can understand in human terms how we would make a decision in a courtroom and how we would reach a verdict under such circumstances in a human based in or a human court that the defense and prosecuting attorneys would present their arguments and then the judge would make his decision based on based on the strengths and weaknesses of the arguments of both the defense 
and prosecuting counsel. And so this is the way to read the debate that's recorded in this Gomorrah here in Shabbos on Daf Nunhe on page 55. On the basis of innocent until proven guilty, there were two groups of defendants here. And the two groups which were quite easily discernible, the Tzadikim, they have the presumption of innocence, and the Rishoyim, there is an overwhelming uh, empirical evidence uh, of their guilt. So on, the, uh, on these bases, the judge ordered the executioner as follows. Inscribe a tab of ink indicating Tichye to live on the foreheads of the righteous as a sign so the six angels of destruction will not touch them because there is no evidence of their guilt. Inscribe a tab of blood indicating Tamut die on the foreheads of the wicked who have already been convicted so that the six angels of destruction will slaughter them. At that point, prosecution counsel objects. How are the righteous ones different from the wicked ones? The defense counsel says, because we have two discrete groups here. One group of fully-fledged righteous people and one group of fully-fledged wicked people. At which point the prosecution says, Your Honor, but the fully-fledged righteous group could have protested publicly to the conduct of the wicked, and they didn't do so. So they are accessories to the crimes before and after the fact. At which point the defense counsel argues, True, but even had they protect, uh, protested the conduct of the wicked, the wicked ones would not have accepted the rep- reprimand and rebuke from them and would still have committed the crimes. Uh, to which the prosecutor says, it's true, their reprimand rebuke would have been ineffective, but they didn't know it would have been futile at the time, and therefore they should still have attempted to rebuke. At which point the God, the judge, in this case God, uh, comes in and says, after consideration, I accept the argument of the prosecuting counsel. And I find the righteous to be guilty as well. So sentence will be carried out on both groups. Everyone is sentenced to either death or exile and begin the sentence with the righteous. And that is the meaning of the verse. That is what the verse says here. Zokein bochur, this is verse six. Zokein bochur basula v'taf v'noshim. All the groups, everybody. Taragu, kill them all. Send them all to destruction. Originally, the plan was that anyone that had a tab of ink on their forehead would be saved. But now, the gen- after, now after the, so to speak, the human court case, the anthropomorphic court case, God tells you, and, but now, the decision has been changed. Prosecution counsel has made that point. And therefore, even the holy ones, Mimigdoshi, even my holy ones are guilty and they should be killed. So by so the destroyers destroyed, began the destruction uh, with the elders, with the righteous, who were standing by the base of Migdosh. So uh, that is the answer. And uh, again, not altogether satisfactory. 
That is the answer to the first two questions on this Gemara. But we have, which we're not the time for, there are two more questions that uh, need to be answered. And these are the questions that we're going to answer, please God, uh, in three weeks' time. And these two answers, these two questions are far more straightforward uh, than the first two. Um, and the two questions that we've left, we've left to answer, there's a fifth one as well, which we'll deal with maybe at the end of the next year. But the two questions we're going to be dealing with next time is the significance of this letter tab that's written, so supposedly written on the heads of both the sinner and the tzaddik. Um, and there are many reasons given for the use of this letter tab, as we'll see, rather than another letter. The tab is uh, particular. And the second question, or question number four, um, why was the tab written on the heads of the Sadiqin written in ink? Now, Irwin has got uh, his own theory here, which we'll explore next time, uh, that um, ink is permanent and blood blood can be washed away. Is that what he said? Levels of Sadiqin, you know, where is it? Where's his state? Where's his comment? Once again, ink is indelible, but blood dries up and deteriorates and is washed away. So that's Irwin's uh, proposition. We'll deal with that next time. We didn't get to it today. But the, the question was, why was the uh, tab written on the heads of the Sadiqim in ink, whilst the tab on the heads of the Rashaim on the wicked people written in blood? And so those those are the questions we'll have to deal with next time. And that will lead us into uh, a discussion about uh, under which circumstances uh, they would have been responsible and why they were responsible to rebuke uh, what was going on or to stand up and publicly uh, protest what was going on in Yerushalayim. So essentially, we're, hot, we're really we'll be on halfway through understanding this Gomorrah. Um, but again, we really do have to understand it because the Gomorrah in essence, without explanation, um, seems to defy our understanding of the way God works. And uh, therefore, uh, we have to explore these last two questions. Why the letter Taf? Why was it written in ink on one, on one person's head? And why was it written in blood on another person's head? So that's where we're up to. Um, we'll pick up from there, please, God, in three weeks' time. You've got plenty of time to do Chazara. Um uh, there's a halacha in Shulchan Aruch that people are not aware of, so I'll just remind you of it, that it's mutter. It's perfectly permissible to go over stuff you've learned before. Right? In fact, it's encouraged. The Gemara says that uh, unless you've been over a piece of Gemara 40 times, so you probably don't understand it so well. So I know most of you, when you learn Gemara with me, so as soon as uh, I uh, switch off the Zoom or as soon as you leave Shir, you go home and you chazer it over, you go over it 40 times, so by the time you get, I know Larry, that's the first thing Larry does when I uh, finish my Gemara share. But uh, this particular piece of uh, Yechezkel uh, requires a bit of Chazorah. So you've got two weeks. I'm giving, I'm specially arranged to go away during these two weeks to give you plenty of time to do a bit of Chazorah on this Gemara in, in Shabbos, on Daphne Nunhei, on an Aleph, on my base. And when we come back fresh in two weeks, hopefully fresh, um, then we we will come to with some sort of conclusion about what's going on. Just to, a reminder again that Yechezkel is seeing this five years before 
um, the destruction. And he's seeing it in allegorical terms, not how it's going to actually unravel, how it's going to take place. The people that are going to destroy Yerushalayim are going to be Babylonian soldiers, not six angels of destruction. He's seeing it in allegorical terms. Um, All right. uh, one second. Cherna wrote, there were two levels of tzaddikim, but all Rashoim were the same. Yeah, that's a question that uh, a lot of the commentators ask on the uh, the Benish Chai here, the Ben Yoda. It's not just that there are two levels of tzaddikim, but all the Rashoim are the same. The reality is, you, the, the, how many, there's, there's hundreds of discrete categories that you can put people in. I mean, there's not three, right? I mean, uh, you know, two Jews, three, three opinions. Um, and you've got 10 Jews and you can find five categories for the 10 Jews. So it's a, a very difficult, uh, uh, um, analysis of the Ben Yoda, which is why I brought you the anthropomorphic example. Yeah. Uh, one question. David Barrett from is Leeds. There, is there a message for all of us? Yes. Today of yes. the history of the Jews. Yes. There's going to be a, a, at the end of this, the, the message is going to be very, very stark. But we have to get there first. The message is going to be very stark. Well, the message that Yechezkel gets at the end of this vision is a message for all generations. What he, what he takes away from his vision is Lador Doros, is for all generations. But we haven't come to it yet. We won't come to it yet for a, a, another year and a half. The takeaway. Why God is showing him something five years into the future when um, um, when something that's not taken place yet, something that's uh, five years away. If he was showing him something that was, you know, half an hour away or an hour away or a day away or a week away, so that's one thing. Why is he showing him something seems that seems to be set in stone five years before it actually takes place? And that is going to be uh, Yechezkel's takeaway uh, from this vision, which we haven't completed yet. The vision's not complete yet. In any event, that's where we're up to. That's where we're going to start next time. Um, again, we're still in, on verse six. Um, and please, God, will finish that off next time and move on to... Um, Verses seven and eight. Oh, no, we're on verse seven now, right? This is verse seven. No, we've not done verse seven yet. This is still verse six. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, please God, we'll, we'll get to verse seven pretty quickly next time. We'll answer these two questions and we'll proceed with the end of the vision, which again, as, uh, our friend, Mr. Barrett pointed out, is it, is it a message for all generations? Yes, it is. Until then. We should all live in health and happiness. Call to, to everybody. Have a great week. Have a great Shabbos. Have a great fortnight. Have a great rest. Go over the, uh, the ch- chapter nine of Yechezkel. And we'll meet again in health and happiness in three weeks time today. Call to, to everybody. Have a great, Have a great trip. trip. Have a good trip. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.